Welcome to the Recovering from Religion podcast. We are a vibrant international community for those who have questions or doubts about their faith. I'm your host, Tim Rimel, along with my co-host, Bill Prickett. We want to welcome Dave Warnock to our show today. We're going to be talking about um, your journey, Dave. We're going to be talking about ALS, which is something you're dealing with now, and um, what it's like to go through the dying process when you no longer have faith. So welcome to our show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Glad to be here. Dave, can you let's just start by telling a little bit about your journey. I mean, you you used to be a minister for a while and kind of you want to talk about where you where you've been and how you got to where you are now. Okay, yeah, that's um a long story, um, a long journey that this podcast does not have sufficient time to capture. <laughs> um I'm sixty-three years old. Uh when I was eighteen, I got swept up in the Jesus movement. And I spent the next three and a half decades as an evangelical Christian in the charismatic, independent church uh, stream of things. And for much of that time, I was a pastor on staff at churches or a lay leader or uh, in the mix of leadership in some capacity or other. And I say that to... to underscore the idea that I wasn't just a casual Christian. I wasn't just one of these guys that kind of was raised in church and kind of went along with it because that was what we did. And, you know, you go to church and I was all in all the time. I was teaching the Bible. I was studying the Bible. I was uh, preaching, baptizing, marrying, burying, doing all the things, counseling a lot of, a lot of, uh, individual counseling, biblical counseling, of course, we got our answers from the Bible and, um, Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We don't go into (laughs) for all that mental health stuff. You know, you just pray it away and, and fixes it. Mm -hmm. So you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you, you and I, you and I are about the same age and I came into, I came into the faith, uh, I'm 66 and I came Mm -hmm. into the faith just probably a year before you're talking about. So it was also the Jesus movement, and oh wow, and I was all in as well. So I totally, totally know where you're coming from. Yeah, you understand the language. Yes, and it was yeah. just—it was so much so that when I when I converted, when I became born again and baptized with the Holy Spirit, speaking in tongues, all the stuff, it was such a radical shift for me. I was in a year between high school and planning to go to college, but uh, I was going to go to college that next year, and. and because I got saved and because Jesus was coming back next Wednesday, I didn't have time (laughs) to spend getting an education and doing a career. I had people to save. my God, the world is going to hell. We've got to do this now. Right. And that was the urgency that was in the air back in those days. Um, the late great planet earth. Remember that book? Oh, I was just, I was just going to bring that up because when you said that, that's what it, you know, I was a youth minister at that time and we taught that book to our youth group. Oh yeah. I hate to admit it now, and I've apologized (laughs) profusely over the years, but absolutely. You ever meet somebody in the store that you used to have in your church and just walk up to them and say, I'm just so sorry. (laughs) You kind of want to, right? Yeah. Oh, you know, having a a semi-national platform, not the podcast, but my my blog and I, 
write on Facebook a lot and right. I've, I've spoken. So I do apologize uh, profusely about some of the things that, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't really want to be hard uh, on the, the person that I was back then. Right, right. I was who I was. I knew what I knew when I knew it. And then I did it. But, you know, the, the converse is true because I've had people write to me and just just are so mean because I'm not where I am now, where I was then. Mm-hmm. And But you taught us this. And so, yeah, was, and we can we can get caught up in our own uh, self-flagellation kind of thing. Oh, yeah. We beat ourselves up for what we did and how. You know, and it's one thing to kind of look in the mirror and say, how in the hell did I believe that stuff, you know, or uh-huh. to a friend who's in a, I've got a lot of ex-Christian friends that are now atheists like me. And we'll look at each other sometimes and just go, we'll shake our heads and say, what were we thinking? How did this happen? But <laughs> there, that's one thing. But to, to really be hard on yourself is not fair, because like you said, we were doing the best we could. And I like what Maya Angelou said. She said, do the best you can until you know better and then do better. Yes. And and that's what we're doing now. Exactly. And that's one. And I have that. I actually have that quote on my bulletin board over my laptop. That's awesome. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's good to remind yourself of that because it's really how we have to live. It is. OK, you you go go from your Jesus movement. Keep go forward. <laughs> so, yeah. So that was in the 70s, 1973, to be exact. I mean, it was the kind of thing my my religious experience was so marked. It was I mean, I had it down to the day. I had a, I had a deacon. I mean, a, a, a conversion date, like a new birth. You know, you have a birthday and then a, a new birth date. And it was December 26, 1973. Mine was December 19th. Well, there you go. <laughs> Sorry. So we knew. See, that that was how you marked it. It wasn't one of these things. That, yeah, yeah I kind of got saved. You know, we knew. Mm-hmm. So I went and I did the whole street preaching and coffee house stuff and and uh, just really, really uh, dove into becoming a Jesus person who really was trying to do everything I could to influence as many people toward the kingdom of God as I could. And I, and I didn't have time for careers or or getting a degree or anything i never went to college and i never did get any never did get back to that track um because then i just kind of started working and having businesses and then i went on staff at churches and then because because you can't have sex unless you're married and i realized that my god it's going to be hard if i never get to have sex i better find a wife so you get married you have kids and then just year after year goes and and never did I stop to examine the faith that I'd given myself wholeheartedly to? Mm-hmm. And it was, it was only a few years back that I finally paused and said, wait just a minute, <laughs> let me take a closer look at this. So you got involved in the faith in your teens. Was your family religious or are they religious? No, they are now, funny, <laughs> funny enough, um, but they weren't then. Uh, my older brother had gone off to college and had gotten uh, witness to, and he jumped in a year ahead of me and he influenced me. And, um, my younger brother didn't have a clue. My, my younger sister, my mom, my dad, my stepdad, I mean, uh, none of them were, our, our household was not religious. I was in a broken home and Hmm. mom remarried when I was 10. Um, and my stepdad raised us, uh, but it was a non-religious home. It was a, it was a good home in, in terms of peace and, and, relative harmony and but it was just no sense that we didn't go to church there was no bible around it was just a non-thing 
and then my older brother and then myself got radically saved and and scared the shit out of the rest of them because we were wild-eyed radical carrying around 20 pound bibles and had big wooden crosses around our necks and you know we were jesus freaks in every sense of the word um but over the years they've come into the faith and i've left it (laughs) (laughs) it it sounds like it sounds like you're my you're my brother i I, i'm looking in a mirror i had the big bible i had the cross i had i mean it sounds like you're telling kind of my story or maybe that's just because of that era which as you said you have to be you had to kind of be there because it was you know uh it was so free. It was kind of an offshoot of the hippie movement. It was. And, yeah. and the music began to change and church began to change. And, and I mean, I remember as a youth minister clashing with the church because we were trying to reach out to kids that they really didn't want in church. <laughs> oh, my God. No. Yeah, that was our experience, too. Our whole thing was... Um, a small it was like a small home group it wasn't even a church where i got saved and so all the churches in our view were dead you know they were just and so we were going to these churches on sunday mornings and we'd be this this pack of of wild-eyed jesus freaks coming in and they they were scared of us (laughs) i had more than one minister sit me down and talk to me and tell me that that i'd had to i couldn't come in there and talk to their youth because mm-hmm. i was listening to rock music yeah or i had my hair was too long or I, I had one minister tell me i shouldn't even carry a bible around because who do you think you are you don't live up to that and you know just they they were mm-hmm. didn't know what to do with us and so yeah, we well, were you you're you were pentecostal so your church yeah. was a little free i was southern baptist so it was a little they, they were much more stoic Mm-hmm. And I got called into the pastor's office about the cross that I wore. Yeah, it's it was, too big. You know, it's, a, <laughs> it's a little bit. Well, even it was just the fact that you wore one. It was kind of uh, it, too expressive. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I remember getting called into the pastor's office so regularly because of one thing, because of the music, because of the things I was teaching, because I tried to have a a. a black guy come and speak to our youth group. I mean, it was just one thing after another. Yeah, <laughs> it, uh, it sounds very similar to my experience. Uh, yeah, I was trying to work with a youth group, a Baptist church youth group, and the pastor called me into his office and asked me point blank, do you, I mean, I'll never forget it, do you talk in those tongues? <laughs> and I said, uh, yes, I do. Would you like me to? <laughs> he didn't. He didn't appreciate that. So I have a question for both of you guys is, how the hell did how the hell did you get involved in church in your teens? I, I grew up in it, so that, it, it made sense to me. But I can't imagine for the life of me why you would get why involved. Why would do that on purpose? Why you would not, not only do that on purpose, but it 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 smacks against your self esteem. Your uh, you know I, I mean to to be put in in a box. You got put in a box all of a sudden, and now you're carrying around crosses and you're doing all of these things. So ex- explain this to me. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. We're stupid. That's why. Next question. Next question. I cannot cannot confirm that or I will not deny that. Well, I'll tell you what. And I've done, trust me, I've done a lot of soul searching about that. And I'm actually uh, working on a book and and, um, doing some things to try to uh, encapsulate some of my experiences. uh, I think we're going to work on a documentary and we'll talk about some more of that at the end maybe. But as I'm as I'm writing this book and as I'm looking back on my life, um, 
that question has occurred to me more than once. And I, and, and I think the answer is this. I think that I was, as an 18-year-old, out of high school with a little bit of, uh, well, not a little bit, a lot of uncertainty about what my future looks like, hmm. uh, a lack of guidance from uh, parents, a, a lack of motivation, and just in a very vulnerable uh, place in my life. And Jesus comes along, or the idea of Jesus, you know, when I say that, that's what I mean. The concept of, of here, here's the Bible, here's this book, here's this movement that's exciting and has all the answers and has all, all the stuff you'll ever need for your life. It's all right here. Just say yes to this. And, and I got that, that appealed to me in a sense that, that um, I, I didn't have to, I didn't have to worry about what was coming next. I didn't have to think, Oh my, what am I going to do with my life? How's that going to fit? Um, it was right there laid out for me. And so I think as I I look back on it, I think it was because I was just this vulnerable, impressionable young man looking for something to give myself to that had meaning and purpose. And this just fit all of that for me. We interviewed uh, Dr. Uh, Yanya Lelich a a few weeks ago, and she was talking about how cults will do the same thing is that you get them when they're vulnerable, you get them when... Um, you know, you're offering something that, that they don't have, and it, it comes across as peace of mind, and it seems like the, the perfect place to be. I think that's it. At least for me, that's what it was. Right. And as you know, evangelicals, they go after the young ones, get them as young as they can, the, right. uh, vacation Bible schools and, <laughs> and, and the kids' ministries. They know that you get them when they're young before they've had time to think about this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and to my discredit, I never examined it. I didn't lay it out against all the other religions and say, okay, which one makes the most sense? I just jumped in because it was, it was exciting. It was, it, it gave me a, a place to belong. And I, I really, looking back, I, I see that I, I lacked that. Um, I, I, that's what I was needing. And, and then it just one thing leads to another and you, the sunk cost fallacy gets in and, and the questions over the years and the doubts and the things that don't add up, you just kind of tamp them down or, or shove them aside and you keep moving forward because you're in it now and you're raising your kids in it. And, and before you know, you look up and you realize, wow, I've been this thing my whole life. And so I was in my mid-50s before I ever began to really seriously examine anything about my faith. I mean, I, you know, we, as they like to say, Oh, we all have doubts. Doubts is a, a an expression of your faith, and it's healthy to have doubts. But doubts, questions that have predetermined answers aren't really questions. Yes, and yes. So those don't count. Um, but when I came to the place where I finally was willing to lay it all on the table and say, "Let me really look at this from A to Z, top to bottom, inside out. Examine the origins of the Bible. Examine the origins of the church. Um, really dig this thing up and see if it's going to hold up in the in the light of day." And when I really did that with an honest and open mind, it, it did not hold up at all. And it fell apart pretty quickly for me. What was the catalyst? Personal pain, which is usually the catalyst for all of us. Mm-hmm. Mine was an um, experience with my daughters where and I was on a church staff and the pastor and I were clashing because he was you know, a real control freak and manipulative and I'm not one that is told what to do real easily. Um, and so we clashed and, and uh, I was having success as an associate pastor and I had a lot of popularity and there was a lot of, he and I were just clashing anyway. I ended up getting fired. 
from my last position on, on a church staff, and that was in um, 2009, exactly 10 years ago. Um, and that led to, because my daughters were married to men, or they are married to men who were uh, in the, in a student intern program, which in that in that church, when you mention cult, it's, you know, I, I consider pretty much all of Christianity to be a cult in, in one way or the other, but there are branches of it and brands of it that are more cultish in their in their uh, workings than others. And and this one was very cultish in the way that they did things and the way that they exercised control over their people. And so it, essentially my daughters ended up being in the position of, of uh, having to choose between siding with their dad and siding with God. And being the good Christian girls that I raised them to be, they chose God. <laughs> and in, in that sense, were forced into a position of basically shunning me and my wife at the time. I'm not married now, but I was then. And um, and so it, it, it led to a, a year or two of real anguish in my heart and my mind of, okay, here I was, God serving you the best of my ability and trying everything I could. And a lot of people have cried out to God without getting a response. And the reason that they don't get a response is because he's not there. But we don't think that way. We think, oh, well, God's just, you know, testing you or, you know, he's trying, trying, giving you trials so that strengthen your faith, all the little ways that we excuse God for his poor behavior. And, and so I, I have at first was kind of in that camp thinking, okay, God, you're testing me and, and this is, you know, you're going to come through. And, and I was just really in a place of a personal loss and feeling just sad and depressed and angry and all those things. And I began to really, really begin to finally say, where, where are you, God? Where the hell are you? Where have you ever, have you ever been there? And, and so I've, that didn't turn me out of my faith, but it began me, it, it, it launched me down the path of discovery where I began to say, okay, wait just a minute. Let me take a closer look at this. So that was essentially the catalyst for me. And, and but prior to this, you were in the ministry for many years. Oh, yeah. 35, 36 years. Yeah, uh, that's what I was. I remember um, as I did my research about you, I, I saw that you were in the ministry for a significantly long time. I was I was kind of younger when I began to reevaluate some of the things in my ministry and, and those kinds of things. But my catalyst was a lot different than yours. But I did understand some of the, some of where you came from. So take you back to what you were just saying. You had this period of about a year where you're really asking, you know, and, and Tim and I have talked about this in other other episodes, our fundamental background, it, it's not a good environment for asking some of these hard questions. We can't voice them out loud because people are just aghast that you say, you know, I don't really know if the creation story makes sense, or I don't yeah. really know if this doesn't. No. And so it's just really not an environment. So when we start having these doubts, it's all internal. And and we feel so horrible about it. We do, yeah. And you can't really talk to anyone about it because everyone, at least for me, everyone in my world was living in the same bubble. And, and so there's no one. And because I was looked upon as a leader, then if I start talking to people that are not peers of mine, then I'm, I'm really, and I didn't want to do this even, but I, I would have been construed as trying to lead them astray or trying to cause doubts in them and i didn't want to do that to someone else so i didn't have anyone really to bounce things off of i mean i could my brother 
my older brother who led me to this to the Lord uh, back in the day, he's still a, an evangelical pastor in in East Texas, um, and and I could have talked to him, but he would have just tried to. I, I don't think I would have gotten honest answers from him. So when you're trying to talk with someone who's in the same bubble that you are, then I don't think, for me anyway, I didn't trust that they would be as authentic in their search and discovery as I was trying to be. So I didn't feel like I could go to anyone that was in that place because I didn't think I'd get an honest answer. I thought I'd get some, the same old uh, babble that, I, that I've gotten before when you had a question. And that's, that's what happens in that bubble. You just It's an echo chamber. So I had to go outside to outside sources and started reading books that are viewed as contraband within that circle. And I, and, and I remember this one book that uh, you, you probably remember, the, the Rob Bell book, Love Wins. Y'all remember that one? What a, what a great, what a great, I, I just adore Rob Bell anyway. Yeah. That's such a good book. So that was kind of like a gateway book to me. You know? I remember, <laughs> I remember finding it in a Barnes and Noble one day. I'd heard about it and I thought, hmm. And this was along the time when I was beginning to really having some doubts here, but I was still, uh, I was still in the church. I was still on staff at that point. Um, and I remember I can't buy this book and take it home. What if somebody sees me reading this? This is, you know, he was being, he was being shunned by the evangelicals for even writing and thinking such things. But I sat there in that Barnes and Noble, it's a small book. And I read it in about an hour, uh, and looking over my shoulder and making, you know, like I was sitting in there looking at porn, you know, but, uh, and so I was, and I remember thinking, you know what? He's right. He, he, this makes sense. And then the thought occurred to me, this is one of those, those clarion bell moments that I remember having. And, and, and Rob's book kind of processed me to this point. And it was this. And what I realized was my theology, the, the world I was living in, the Christianity that I was adhering to says this that the, the, the very real possibility and probability exists within this theology that Anne Frank is in hell and Ted Bundy is in heaven. And then just pause there a minute and think about that. Because that, any theology that makes room for that possibility is horrendous. But my theology, based upon the sheer truth of God's word as we taught it, that you have to believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior in order to be saved. And if you don't, then you're doomed for hell. Well, Ted Bundy, thank the good Lord, repented before he died, even though he massacred girls. And poor Anne Frank, just because she was an unsaved Jew, uh, when she died, she, unfortunately, we hate this, bless her heart, but she had to go to hell. Mm -hmm. That is despicable. Yeah. yeah, And I had to face the fact, and I've talked to Christians about, I've used this, this with Christian sense. I mean, and, and they can't deny it. They try to dance around it. Well, God, you know, we don't know who's, you know, actually believed and we don't know really what happened with Anne Frank and blah, blah, blah. But the reality of the theology is that's what happened. And that's how that story goes. And I could not live in that world any longer. And those were there. There were several moments like that that, where I had some some real clarity in my mind and realized this is not working for me. This doesn't make sense to me. I can't do this anymore. Hmm. Do you think that's common, Dave, with 
pastors who continue to preach or in the pulpit that have these doubts that just don't say anything? I mean, is that, have you experienced that? Yes, very much so. Um, you guys probably have heard of the clergy project. Yeah. They're partners of ours. Yes. Okay, good. Well, I was on the board of that up until just a few months ago. Hmm. And so I was very involved with all the stuff that goes on. And, um, and as you know, there are people, there are clergy that are caught in the pulpit, as they say, as the Linda, the book that Linda and Dan wrote, um, and, and they, they've quit believing, but they're stuck. They don't know what to do to make a living. They, they don't know how to get out. So yeah, I th- I, and I think there are people, pastors and lay people who have quit believing or have started the process of deconversion, but they don't know who to talk to. They're afraid to talk to anyone. They just lock it up in themselves and and they're afraid because a lot of them know there's a lot that you could lose if you voice your opinions oh yeah and i i've i've mentioned on our our show before in the past that even in my the middle of my evangelical days when i was pastoring a church uh, i was pastor of the same church for almost 11 years and and i never preached on hell because the concept always bothered me yeah. Uh, just like you were talking about people like Anne Frank and those, it just, the idea bothered me that there were millions of people who had the complete misfortune of being born in the wrong place. Just that lucky for them. Couldn't, yeah. yeah. It's, uh, it's <laughs> so sad for them. Sucks to be you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so we have to send missionaries, but we can't get to all of them. But, you know, we'll get to heaven because God knows we tried to get to all those people. And it just never made sense to me. But as you were talking about, I couldn't couldn't stand up in the pulpit and say that. You know, I was kind of the same way. Yeah. Yeah. I remember preaching a sermon once where I was talking about the symbolism of the uh, descriptions of heaven, of streets of gold and all. And I was talking about it being symbolism. And I got raked over the coals by a couple of people mm-hmm. because I didn't believe heaven literally had streets of gold and the gates of pearl. So I can't imagine if I said, you know what? I'm really struggling with hell. Huh. <laughs> Isn't it fascinating that people will fight you to yes. believe in hell? <laughs> don't take, don't take my hell away from me. I need there to be a hell. Isn't that just unbelievable? But it's true. It is true. That, that's what drives them is the fear of hell. If you take the fear of hell away, then where does the where does the faith go? Why bother? Exactly. Why do we need a savior then? What's the whole point of everything? Right. So yeah, there there's pro, it's all problematic when you start deconstructing the house, so to speak. It it is a house of cards, and if you take one too many cards away, if you take hell away, and you take the atonement away and you take the virgin birth away and you take the resurrection. Whoops. That's too much. We're gone. It's done. The whole thing crumbles. And you realize that there's really no need for any of it. And, but I'm, I'm kind of like you were, I, I, I had a hard time with hell. So I just kind of danced around the issue and I wouldn't preach about it. I would preach more about God's love and what he wants us to be and how he's, he's there in our lives. And, and, you know, it was just a positive message uh, I, I just I just avoided it because it was just an unpleasant idea. So I think probably long before I would care to admit it, I, I quit believing in it. I just didn't really realize it. One thing that strikes me, though, when you're in the church is that people are all people, right? We We think the same way, we do the same things. And when you're in church and you're feeling so isolated because you have these feelings or emotions, 
And of course, you say something and then somebody's quick to, to slap you down. I, I always thought they're probably thinking the same thing. There's probably a ton of other people that are in the same place, but we're afraid to be the first one to step out or we're afraid to, that, you know, of, of, of being smacked down because we're, we said it. We know we're all thinking it, but we said it. Yeah, it, it, that's true. I think there is that fear of being rejected or um, being refuted. We want people to think well of us. We want to be liked. Um, and we don't want uh, to be viewed as wrong or trouble. We, we don't want to rock the boat. You know, if, if everything's going good, you just leave it alone. R right, exactly. Hey, we're going to take a quick break and do a commercial, and then we'll be right back. Many of us at Recovering From Religion know that changes to our faith and beliefs about God create uncertainty and anxiety. We can find ourselves lacking guidance and without a community. With that in mind, we've developed our first ever Recovering From Religion Fall Excursion, September 20th through the 22nd of this year. We'll be gathering in the tranquil mountains of North Carolina where the stars are bright and the air is clean and fresh, and they talk with an accent like mine. Join us for workshops on embracing healthy sexuality, leaving fears of hell behind, yoga, a guided hike from our very own Dr. Daryl Ray, stargazing, wine and cider tasting, campfires, music, great food, and of course, great company. The on-site lodges are comfortable and modern, and our registration includes all meals and activities. Tickets and lodging are limited, so register early at recoveringfromreligion.org. Free from judgment, join us and rediscover yourself. I'm Gail Jordan, Executive Director of Recovering From Religion. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Recovering From Religion is an online community for those who have questions or doubts about their faith. We're not here to talk you out of or into faith. We just provide a safe place to examine what you believe and perhaps why you believe it. We have staff who can take your calls and chats, and we can help connect you with an evidence-based therapist in your area. On our website, you'll find an extensive database of resources, as well as where to find local support groups in many communities. We want to help you resolve issues around your faith. Recovering from Religion is an entirely volunteer-run organization. If you're interested in being a volunteer, please visit recoveringfromreligion.org and look for the Volunteer tab. Also, we invite you to support us with a monthly or one-time donation. All contributions go directly to fund Recovering from Religion programs and outreach efforts. On our website, click on the Donate button for instruction. Now, you mentioned earlier... Uh, uh, Dave, you mentioned the clergy project, and I don't want to get too far off that topic because it's such an amazing program. I know that when when I was uh, kind of questioning everything, and again, you know, my story is is so similar to yours in the origins, but then in the latter stage, it's kind of very different. But I I think that we we all go through this this internal question and the shame and the guilt and the you know, God, what's wrong with me? And God, what's wrong with you? Mm -hmm. and, and the clergy project has such a powerful community for that. So I want you to talk to us just a little bit about the clergy project in case somebody's listening and really needs a resource like that. Yeah, it's a great, great program. I found it to be very vital for me in a, in a, a particular time. Because when I, when I came to the conclusion, and I, I use that phrase guardedly because a lot of people will say, well, you know, you just decided not to believe. No, I didn't. 
I came to the conclusion that I no longer believed. And, and it's a very important distinction because it wasn't something I chose. It was something that happened to me. And when that happened, uh, I knew no one that had experienced that. I felt completely isolated. I did not know where to go to find someone who'd been through that. Uh, my wife was still a believer. Everyone in my life was still a believer. Um, I didn't know anyone that I could talk to and say, this is what's happened to me. Help me understand this. And so I started reaching out um, and looking online, and I came, I came across Jerry DeWitt and, I, and Dan Barker. And I, I, I know I talked to Jerry one time, maybe two, early on, and then uh, gradually through that or, or Dan, or I think Dan is where I came upon the Clergy Project, and I reached out to them and did an interview and got, got more and more involved with them. And then um, on a committee meeting one night, we were having a video conference call and there were several of us on there. And there was a, a guy that on there named Cass Midgley. He's, and I was living in uh, just south of Nashville at the time in Franklin. And, and we were telling everybody where we're, who we are and where we're from. And he said, I'm in Murfreesboro. And I said, dude, we're 30 minutes apart. We ought to get together and get a drink or something. And so we did the next uh, the next week and and started hanging out and he over the course of the next three that was probably four years ago he and i become best friends um in fact when i got the diagnosis that we'll talk about in a little bit um, i was living by myself in nashville in an apartment and and realized i didn't need to sign another one-year lease because i didn't know how this was going to go and i just and cass and his wife said just move in with us and so I, they made a space for me in a bonus room, made an apartment area for me, and I'm now living with them uh, in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, and that all started because of my connection that came through the Clergy Project. So it's a great resource for people who are losing their way, have lost their way, and need to find support and encouragement with people who've been through the exact same thing. And Recovering from Religion is, uh, we partner with the Clergy Project. So uh, on the recoveringfromreligion.org website, there are links to the Clergy Project as well. So if you need if you need that information and that resource, it is available there. And uh, something that is helpful for people who are going through it or who have been through it, because as Dave, as you were saying, when you're in the pulpit, you're having these doubts and you think, what am I going to do now? It's easy to be cavalier and look on the outside and say, well, if you had any integrity, you just walk away. Yeah. Well, it's not always that easy. It's never that easy. <laughs> exactly. It's never that easy. And people who say that just don't have any empathy or understanding for what they're dealing with. Well, and I think that's true of so many areas. In fact, probably one that, that you're dealing with now. Yeah. Well, I was lucky in that when I lost my faith, I'd already left the pulpit and I was working in the insurance business and had been doing that for two or three years. So I was one of the fortunate ones that was able to stumble into a, a, a career that that had sustained me and did did quite well with it, actually. And mm -hmm. but it's not always that easy. And it's it's uh, everybody's situation is different. Yeah. And so, yeah, we need to we need to have understanding. Yeah, I did as well. I, I started I had been writing off and on for years for different magazines and things. So I just kind of fell off and said, well, I'll 
I'll use my writing and mm-hmm. and then moved gradually into a, a PR, built a career in public relations. Awesome. So it, but it is not easy. I, I know friends who, I mean, just they left and, and they struggled, you know, ever since they, they've left the ministry, Yeah. their family have struggled, they've struggled. And so it's just not easy. And, and my heart goes out to them because not just the trauma of dealing with the, the doubts and the, and the questions, but then you're having to try to figure out what to do with your career and your mm-hmm. life and feed your family. It, it's, it's a difficult situation. Yeah, it is. It's, it's hard. All of it's hard. I, I really appreciate what you guys do because I know you guys have the hotlines and the yes. people looking for help and, 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 and connections. And a good friend of mine, Todd Yoder, uh, works with you guys as a, as a counselor on, on the phone. And, mm-hmm. and he tells me, you know, the calls he gets and it's just, there's so much trauma associated with this stuff and it just it's so unnecessary what what religion does to us i just yeah sometimes makes me so angry <laughs> well yeah exactly and and that's you uh, know with the with the call lines that we have and you know people can just have somebody to listen to them our our role is not to talk somebody into or out of faith no it's to listen uh to give you a safe space to to express all those doubts that you can't tell anybody else about uh, you could you can talk to somebody and and and, and we also have the um, uh, secular therapist right. project which right. if you need a therapist in your area who can understand and help you through the the idea of doubting your faith and coming out of your faith we have that available to you so those are important resources for people who are going through this and and I appreciate you talking about the clergy project because. The more I know about it, I, I just wish there had been something like that mm-hmm. as I was going through this process. Yep, it's it's uh, we need more of this kind of stuff because there's uh, I think I think the trend we're seeing is going to continue in terms of people leaving the faith, right. and I mean I hope so because I I've come to the place where I believe it's toxic, and not not all not all religion, not all Christianity is the same, but there are brands of it that are more toxic than others in terms of what it does to people and and how uh, forceful they are in trying to get things done that trying to make this a Christian nation and, and things that we could go down a rabbit trail talking about. So I'll shut up. <laughs> Dave, I want to talk about your diagnosis. You were diagnosed with ALS how long ago now? Uh, let's see. It was February 26th. So that's uh, been about what? F- five months, five months. Wow. How are you processing that diagnosis? Four months, actually. Um, you know what? That's a that's a good question. I, I, off and on, I, I've just I made some uh, pretty pretty radical decisions pretty quickly. I retired from working and I moved in with friends, like I told you, and I sold stuff and got lightened my load and made a decision very quickly to. Um, I mean, yeah, I, the listeners I think will know what ALS is. Some people know what it is. They kind of know it's a... Yeah, give a little brief overview. Yeah, just to just to give a little overview, because here's what happens. Everybody kind of knows what it is and knows it's a, it's a thing and it's not good. Uh, they know it more commonly as Lou Gehrig's disease. They know it's a fatal disease. Um, it's a three to five year diagnosis uh, from time of uh, diagnosis till death. They, they, the average is uh, three to five years. And so... What happens is you start losing strength in your fingers, hands, legs, or tongue, 
uh, it's usually one of those places starts and then it goes to the others and eventually it goes to your lungs and your lungs quit working and you die. So it's a very uh, debilitating, uh, gra it gradually reduces the amount of things that you can do. Uh, with me, it started with my fingers and hands, the, the work that I was doing. I found that I had a hard time uh, writing certain letters and numbers. They weren't forming. I couldn't get my fingers to work right. And it's one of those things where you, looking back, you can see what it was. But at the time, you're thinking, ah, what is this, carpal tunnel? Is, am I just getting soft? start working out more then you this this is becoming difficult and that's becoming difficult and you kind of don't really think about it until it it kind of snowballs on you and after a while you think okay something's really wrong here so i went uh in january of this year and got started going to doctors and specialists and getting tests done and over the course of a couple months that's what the diagnosis was and um so what i did uh and what i've been doing in terms of processing it is is what i'm i guess we've started calling it dying out loud in, in that i'm talking on podcast and going and speaking and and writing and doing the things that i know how to do uh and talking about not only dying uh with as an atheist because it's, it's a big contrast to to what i would view what i would have viewed death as uh when when i was formerly a christian you know, it was an entry into the next life. Whereas now as an atheist, I, I think, okay, well, this is it. And there is no next life. And that's, that is my personal opinion. I don't think that there's an afterlife. I think this is the one life we have and we need to make the most of it. And so that's what I talk about. Uh, I have a phrase I use called carpe the fucking diem. And you may have to bleep that out, but it, it doesn't sound the same. <laughs> we, if you we don't, don't say the we word. don't beep those words out. <laughs> I don't know. Sometimes I get a little salty for some of my audiences. Oh, well, we 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 have a we have a little uh, button on our podcast that we can push that button and people will know this one is explicit. So we allow our guests to use the language that they are most comfortable with, and so you are you are free to express yourself here. I went so many years not being able to say certain words. I yeah. feel like I'm kind of making I, up. I understand. <laughs> I understand yeah, that. yeah, I get it. I understand that. <laughs> and, and now I'm really running out of time, so I've really got to bear down I, on I this. Still, I still am uncomfortable with some words, even at this age. And <laughs> and as a writer, I write things in in my fiction, and I cringe sometimes. But yeah, I do understand the. It, I still get you know my mother won't allow some of those language some of that language still in her home. So yeah, it's I understand that culture that. that I was raised with. So I do understand. Fortunately, mom, mom doesn't listen to my podcast. So right. I don't think my mom does either. <laughs> um, but anyway, that's my mantra. And when I, I, I divorced about two and a half years ago and kind of rebooted my life because my wife remained a believer. And, and we went through a lot of years with neither of us being able to see the girls or the grandkids. Um, and so I knew that if I left my marriage, she would get to be a grandmother and a wife and a mom and all those things. My son, I've got a son too, and he never did uh, practice the shunning. And he and I have always been good and still are. But uh, all that to say that when I rebooted my life uh, two and a half years ago and kind of started over on my own, living my own life on my own terms, I really began to adopt the mantra of carpe the fucking diem, grab the moments, live life the best you can 
live all do the things you want to do the way that you want to do them and don't let other people dictate how you live your life write your own story and what i mean by that is for a lot of years i was letting other people write my story i was being afraid of who knew i was an atheist i was tiptoeing around certain subjects with certain people and and not that i'm an asshole about it now but i just i don't apologize for who i am i i live my life the best i can and i live it in the open i live it as authentically as i can and i've been doing that for a couple three years and so when i got this diagnosis uh four months ago i just kind of put that in hyperdrive and i i said okay i've really got to bear down and live my best life as long as i can and so that's what i began to do i made up my mind i was going to travel and see places that i wanted to see i was going to spend as much time with people that i care about go and visit people i wouldn't have normally gone to visit and spend time with them and linger around conversations and and just spend time with people because that's what i value so in my processing of this diagnosis that's that's really what i began to focus my time and energy on and then getting my book written and getting things done that i feel like are important for me to say for me to leave um behind and and then not flinching from the concept of dying as an atheist that i'm not afraid of it that i'm not worried about what happened I, you know that god's punishing me or that you know maybe i should turn back to him because oh no i made a mistake um, none of that stuff has occurred to me not even for a nanosecond um, and i'm not afraid of dying of what i'm afraid of is not living my best life and i want to avoid not doing that so that's in a nutshell what my reaction to the diagnosis has been is to just bear down on life can you talk about the transition period of living for decades in this belief of an afterlife and now you realize that that afterlife has gone away yeah um you know it's it's interesting because if you look at and i was talking to my girlfriend about this yesterday um if if an alien landed on earth and and got a copy of the bible and read it from Genesis to Revelation. And then you ask them, okay, define to me what you think heaven is like. They would probably look at you and go, dude, I have no clue. Because it's not clearly expressed in the Bible. There's all kinds of things talked about. There's a new heaven and a new earth. There's paradise. There's uh, something in the, in the clouds or in the sky. It's, it's, there's no clear delineation of this is what heaven's like you know you talked about streets of gold and pearly gates well that's in the book of revelation i think but the book of revelation is like a bad acid trip <laughs> that's so true. how are you going to get a clear idea of heaven from reading that book <laughs> uh so even as a christian i thought okay eternity sounds good i've already punched my ticket i know i'm going to heaven um but if you really set me down after a couple of beers and said, Dave, what do you think about heaven? I would have said to you 20 years ago, probably, I think it's going to be fucking boring. <laughs> and and I, I really think that idea would be because my idea was we were going to be singing Hosanna forever. And I don't want to sing anything forever. I don't want to do anything forever. That's a long time. So the idea of letting go of eternity really wasn't that difficult for me. I, I think I kind of was not buying into it for quite a while anyway. Mm. You know, I, uh, so the idea of the, this being it, 
it's it's really not been a hard thing for me to get a, get my head around because I, I just don't know that I was that sold on the other anyway. And and also I want to say, why are we why, why do people need there to be more than this? This is a pretty damn nice life if we if we see it for what it is, and if we grab the moments that are there, this is pretty beautiful. The fact that we even get to exist. How would you respond to people who say that without an afterlife, it, this this feels meaningless and hopeless? I would say to them that it would be like saying to me, if, if I sat down at my favorite steakhouse and had a wonderful steak cooked exactly the way I want it and a nice baked potato with mounds of butter on it and my favorite beer, and they would say, well, why are you enjoying that so much? It's going to be over in a little bit. And I would say to them, yes, it's wonderful right now. And you're saying to me that I shouldn't enjoy this because tomorrow I'm going to be hungry and have to eat again. And and this this steak, this meal is in and of itself wonderful and enjoyable and that I don't need something beyond this for this to have meaning. So I would say to people that say without the afterlife, this life has no meaning. That's just bullshit. This life has incredible meaning. We just have to make it. It's not given to us. So I have to go out every day and make my own meaning. I think that there are a lot of people, though, that because they because of family, they feel like, well, when the, this person dies, I'll be able to see them again. And letting go of that hope is crushing for them. They don't, they don't want to believe that. Well, I think that's, again, I think that's why religion was invented by men, because there are there are answers. There are questions that we don't have answers to. And, and there are things that we want to believe. There are things that we want to be true. So we create a religion so that we can make those things true to, according to the way we want things to be. Right. And I, I just don't think making something, wanting something to be true is not enough of a reason for it to be true. You know, I, I, I would love to believe that I could play golf for eternity and I would shoot 10 under par every time I played golf. That doesn't mean that that's going to happen just because I want it to happen. That sounds like boring heaven to me. <laughs> well, see, there you go. We all have our different ideas about what's boring. I don't think that I don't think that the idea that that oh, I want to see my loved ones in heaven, and I think I think without that, what's what's the purpose of this? Well, that's just minute, and that's my problem with this afterlife fetish that I call it. It's that we, we, because we have such a fetish for the afterlife and we're so focused on eternity, it causes us to minimize and forfeit the beauty of this life. And that that's is, right. that's very sad to me. It diminishes the beauty of the moments that we have in front of us. And we end up missing them and wasting them because we're so caught up in thinking about heaven. Yeah, totally agree. And, and do you think that it, somebody has to be faced, come face to face with their own mortality? in order to gain some kind of new, because it doesn't seem to be across the board that people think about it in this way of, I'm going to live life now. I'm going to seize the day. I'm going to enjoy the people around me. I'm going to get the most out of my life because most people have never been confronted with a doctor saying to them, uh, here's, here's what we found. Right. And so people don't get it. Yeah, I agree with that. And it's, it's, in a sense, this diagnosis is a gift to me because it has forced me to confront that and then to peel away. It's, it's allowed me to peel away the, the mundane and the unimportant things that, that hamper us, I'm sorry, hinder us from 
living our best life. And so we get caught up in trivial things that really don't make any difference. Mm -hmm. And we allow things to stress us and frustrate us. And I know that life has stresses and frustrations. And even, even now I'll get frustrated in traffic or whatever, (laughs) but, but for the most part, I don't let things get to me like they used to, because it just doesn't matter. And, and so having a fatal diagnosis allows me to focus on that in ways that you guys don't get to. And, and so I, I've like, there was a, a, a time in our local, we have a local meetup of ex-Christian atheists in Nashville that meets once a month. And the meeting we had just after my diagnosis and everybody hearing about it was very emotional and very touching. And people were sharing their reactions to it. a lot of tears. Um, it was about 20 people there. Maybe that's the scope of the meeting. It's not a huge meeting, but one of the women was talking about this thing. And she said, she said she was in frustrating in, in the middle of a day this week. And she said, I just was all frustrated and I just was getting angry. And I, and she said, I stopped and I thought, would Dave let this get to him like this? No, he wouldn't. And and she kind of caught herself and, and, and used me as, as a, a, a measuring tool to say this is just not important in the light of all the things and so somebody across the room said yeah what would dave do and then someone else said yeah wwdd let's make bracelets (laughs) (laughs) and we and we all started laughing but but that's what we've done we've made these bracelets (laughs) and people are ordering them and they're wearing them and it's just a simple reminder to recognize the moments in life that come along to be looking out for them to not let stuff get to not get caught up in the mundane and unimportant and to focus on what really matters and to to carpe the fucking diem all those things and it's just a little reminder sometimes you look down it's oh you Mm -hmm. know what this doesn't matter i need to make that phone call to that friend that i haven't talked to in a while or whatever right uh i wanted to go back to one thing you were estranged from your daughters and with the diagnosis and, and, and being terminal, has that done anything to restore your relationship with your daughters? Uh, a little bit. Okay. They have uh, reached out, and, and I actually had coffee with one of them and her husband um, a couple weeks ago mm-hmm. and hadn't seen them in several years. So that was a step. Uh, my other daughter lives in Florida, and she's reached out and wanting to connect with me. So, yeah, it has dislodged them a little bit from their position. Um, but what, what I think I've seen with that is that they don't know what to do with me. It's not like they're now in a position of saying if like, it's not as though if I ran into them in in a store, they would turn their head away from me. It's not like that. Right. It's just that they don't go out of their way to make room for the relationship. Okay. And, and, and I believe it's more of a sense of, we don't have a way to connect. They don't know what to do with my atheism. They're very uncomfortable with it. And, and I've, I've seen that with other family members who are evangelical, my older brother, my mom, some others who just avoid it. They don't avoid me in, in that strict sense that my daughters did, but they just don't know what to do with me as an atheist. And now especially me as an atheist who's dying mm-hmm. because their theology says that I'm going to go to hell. Right. But they don't know. They've my brother who is, is a, as opinionated as I am, he, um, early on after my deconversion made a couple of attempts to reconvert me and that did not go well. (laughs) And we, we, we ended up in some pretty heated go rounds 
So he's made no effort since then, and that's been four or five years ago, to engage me in, in conversations about this. Um, although, you know, like it, it's kind of passive aggressive. Like when he got the news of my diagnosis, he sent me a text that said, hey, hey, brother, heard the news, been praying ever since. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that's a shitty asshole uh, passive aggressive comment because he knows how I feel about that. But he wanted to let me know that he was still right and I was still wrong. And that he was going to pray. I want to say, well, exactly what are you praying, mm. brother? Are you praying that God will heal me? Because that would be the first time anyone's ever been healed of ALS. And why would God heal an atheist? And secondly, are you praying that I will get reconverted before I die so that I go to the right place? And I'd be curious what his answer is. And we may have that conversation yet. Have you, have you had people say or hint that, that this diagnosis is because of your deconversion? Well, my, my situation in that regard is a bit unique, and this is another layer to my story. Um, cue sad music. Um, my, my daughter that I had coffee with last week, uh, she has stage four cancer um, and has been dealing with that for three years. And she's a very uh, dedicated, uh, fervent believer in Jesus Christ. Um, and so she's been struggling with, with stage four cancer and and so everybody in my family and friend circle knows that. So they would have a hard time coming to me and saying, God's judging you or punishing you by giving you ALS when I've got a daughter who has cancer and she's a believer. Now, you know, Christians can segment things and say, well, God's testing her, but he's judging you. Yeah, yo, and, yes, exactly. and some people would do that privately, but they wouldn't mm -hmm. dare say it to my face. Okay. So, no, I've had none of that, thankfully. Well, I, I just wondered. I uh, had a cancer diagnosis years ago, and one of the first letters I ever got was from, was from a former church member who yeah, uh, who God had put it on his heart to tell me <laughs> that, that the reason I had cancer was because I had left our conversion therapy group. So um, I, I totally understand that, and that's why I asked the question. I, it, I was curious about it. Well, I'm sure there's some that are privately saying that among themselves uh, in, in their prayer as in their prayer groups uh, for me um, as they pray for me. They're probably sharing that as a prayer request. Um, you know how that you know how gossip is holy, God, holy gossip, <laughs> righteous gossip in prayer groups. Yeah, gossip is veiled as prayer. Um, <laughs> but no, I don't think, and, and and I don't care what they say about me privately. But no, no one has dared say it publicly. I think they know it would take their head off. <laughs> <laughs> but with your family and you're still struggling, I guess I want to ask this question uh, just out of my own sense of concern. What kind of support do you have around you right now? Uh, enormous. Okay. It, it's overwhelming and I'll probably get emotional talking about it. <laughs> I understand that too. Oh my God. It's been amazing. I've got the best group of friends. They're all ex-Christian atheists. I mean, that that is my community. And we've got this huge group in Nashville. Right now I'm in Charlotte, uh, North Carolina with my girlfriend. Uh, and she's an amazing support as well. Um, and she's committed to me. We're committed to be there. She'll be there till the end. I've got, just to tell you the kind of support I have. <laughs> and I'm, I'm laughing to keep from crying, blubbering, because it's just so powerful. Um, a few weeks after the diagnosis, a couple of buddies and I were, were having a drink at a, a local bar. And these, th uh, there, there were four of us there, and no, there were five of us there, and four of us were ex-clergy. Um, 
three of them I had met through the clergy project. And, and that these are my best people. These are my closest, these are my tightest bunch of people. And so we're having this drink and we're watching a basketball game or something. And we're just talking and one of them just gets real serious. And he says, Hey Dave, I want to ask you a question. And I said, what's that? And he said, I want to, I want to be there at the end. <laughs> And I said, um, are you serious? And he said, yes. I said, you know, it's not going to be pretty. And he said, I know. And I said, man, I'm overwhelmed. And he said, I, I, it would be an honor if I could be there. And the other three guys said, yes, we do too. We want to be there with you all the way. And uh, that's that's my people and that's who I live with and that's who I'm doing life with. And, and I've not, I've not heard that from my Christian family and friends. They avoid the subject, uh, whether they're afraid of it or in denial of it. I don't know, but they just don't, they don't run toward it. Like my atheist friends have my atheist friends have not flinched. I get texts and calls all the time from, friends all over the country, all over the world. How you doing? What do you need? Can, you know, if you ever are in this area, come see us. Uh, we're in, if you're in Seattle, we'd love to buy you a beer. Uh, over and over and over again. It's, it's constant. And, and they just want to embrace me in it. They want to crawl into my pain with me. They're not afraid of it. Uh, and it's, it's been overwhelming. Uh, and it's been a sharp contrast in that reaction as opposed to the reaction from the evangelical Christians who you would think would be all over it because, you know, death is the entrance into eternity. You'd think they'd be clamoring for death, but no, there's this weird, there's this weird thing about death within Christians. In my opinion, I think it's, I think it's weird anyway, but my support has been huge and I feel very loved, very surrounded by, um, people who genuinely care and will do anything for me anything what do the last few years of life look like for you well that's a good question i uh I, i'm i'm doing a lot of traveling i just got back from italy a couple weeks ago with some friends uh, i'm traveling to several speaking engagements coming up I've, i'm going to a couple of schools and other community groups i'm uh, Dan Barker actually reached out. I think I'm going to go do his free thought radio show uh, sometime this summer, whenever we can get it scheduled. So I'm doing as much of that as I can, although it is getting to where I've got to pace myself with that. It's very tiring, tiring to, uh, to travel. I'm still fairly functional. I just have a uh, compromise in my hands and arms, but I do get tired easily. Uh, this, this disease is very unpredictable in terms of how fast it'll progress, where it'll go next. If it goes the way it typically does, then, um, I will lose the ability to use my arms and hands, and then I'll lose the ability to talk, which you might as well put me in the grave. Then if I can't talk, I don't know what to do. Um, and then walk. Um, so yeah, it, it gradually takes things away, um, they say in the ALS world, it stands for always losing something. Um, and it's kind of true. There are some treatments we've looked into. My, my girlfriend Bevan and I went to Washington, D.C. 
a few weeks ago to learn about some stem cell treatments that we're trying to get the FDA to fast track, but they're moving slow. And some people we know have been to Korea to get some treatments. So there are some treatments that we may explore that will extend my functionality. There are, there are no cures that are on the horizon, but just kind of like things that might help me manage it and extend my life. But at some point, the reality is I will lose the ability to do the things I want to do. And for me, that means that I will come to a place of saying, okay, I'm going to end things on my own terms. And, and there's a lot of complexities around that subject. Uh, there are states where uh, death with dignity laws are, are enacted. But those, those laws are very, um, they're pretty lame in terms of all the conditions that are around them. So there are places and organizations that will help me take matters into my own hands in a way that, that doesn't require me to move to another state or, or satisfy all these conditions. I can just do it when I'm ready. And, um, and so I'll, I'll be looking into that. And, and that's, a, that's a moving target. I don't know when I'll get to the place where I'm not satisfied with my quality of life. But it, at this point, unless something dramatic happens between now and then, unless God heals me, <laughs> um, then I will have to come to a decision of when that point is that, that I've reached where I'm not, I'm not comfortable with, with the, the level. Because at, at some point it just becomes it, everything. You can't do anything. Yeah. And everyone has to do everything for you. And it's just this, you're just this burden and, and not a, a burden in so many ways, financially, physically, emotionally. And I, I'm just not the person that's going to take that all the way to the end. At least that's how I see it right now. And that, again, that may, you may talk to me a year from now and I may, I may feel differently. Yeah. But that's what it looks like right now. And I, and I get that. Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier that uh, you're, and I've seen and I've listened to a couple of podcasts that you've done and you talk about dying out loud. Mm -hmm. Talk about what, and briefly as we close out, uh, what does dying out loud mean? And what do you want people to get from that idea? Yeah, two things. It's, uh, when I say dying out loud, it, it also probably more, more so means living out loud. And we've already touched on it a little bit, but it means simply not being afraid of dying, but being afraid of not living. In other words, living your best life all the time while you can and being aware that this life is brief and it's it's tenuous it's unpredictable i mean if you look if you met me right now you would think i'm the picture of health other than if you watched me eat or something where i had to use my hands you would see after a few minutes there's something going on but this you can life can change with one phone call with i walked into a doctor's office and the two hours later i walked out with a sentence of death hanging over my head and, and it changed everything immediately. And so life is very fragile. It's unpredictable. It's chaotic. And so dying out loud to me means that let's don't be afraid of death. Let's talk about it. It's just simply a part of life. It's not the last great enemy like the Bible calls it. That's bullshit. It is just simply what happens to us when we run out of life. Mm -hmm. So the point is let's live as much life as we can before we run out because we don't want to get to the end of it and wish we'd have done that or wish we'd have done this and regret this and regret that. So living out loud and dying out loud are simultaneous messages that I want to promote. It simply says, be the best version of yourself that you can be. Live authentically, live honestly, don't flinch, don't apologize. I've become more vocal about using the word atheist because I don't think it's a bad word. 
and I want to take the stigma off of it. I want people to quit saying that we're awful people. That's one reason I want to do a documentary. I want people to see that the people around me who are who are caring for me the most, who are the kindest and most loving people that I've ever had in my life are atheists. They're not bad people. They're not evil. They're not mean. They're not angry. They just simply don't believe in God. It's that simple. And so those are things I want to talk out loud about and quit apologizing for and quit sneaking around about it. You know, it's, it's it, that's, that's the message I'm trying to, to, to say out loud. I don't know of a better way to end what you just said, Dave. That's that's amazing. And I know you have a Facebook page um, called Dying Out Loud. Yeah, it's just Dave Warnock Dying Out Loud. You can find it on there. Okay. Um, it's where the podcasts and things are, are uploaded once they're released. And my schedule's on there. And blog posts that I've put out. And just all the updates on what's going on with my life. And people can send you a message if they'd like to. Absolutely. And I love to hear from people. And one of my favorite things in the world is to just connect with people in person who I've known online. So, you know, I love to find out if, if I'm going to be in your area, come see me, come hang out. Let's, let's have coffee. Let's have a drink. I, I absolutely love that. Yes. Stuff. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your story with us. This was pretty powerful. We really appreciate it, Dave. I wish you all the best. I, yes. I just, I, I'm, I'm appreciative of your story of your courage, and thank you for being here to tell us and our listeners. Well, thank you guys so much for having me. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Recovering from Religion podcast. If you have questions for either of us or suggestions for future topics, you can email us at podcast at recoveringfromreligion.org. If you think you'd like to be one of our guests, we have a form on the podcast page of the Recovering from Religion website. We'd love to hear from you.